0: Blob
1: Talk Radio Aloha, welcome to Talking Pictures As we say in Hawaii, happy Aloha Friday That just means have an extra great Friday Uh, We're beyond excited about today's episode In fact, I sound more calm So I don't sound like a hyper boy band fan Uh, This is a movie, The Defiant Ones It was a documentary on HBO came out about three weeks ago, and today we're here, Well, first of all introduce the guest, uh, uh, Mr. Vincent Wren, uh, welcome. Thank you, aloha. Oh, thank you, aloha. And uh, Vincent was one of the cinematographers, part of all four episodes. Now, for those of you that have not seen this, this is streaming on HBO, it's continuously running on uh, on HBO, and then it's on HBO Demand, HBO Go. Um, it came out in various forms. I was fortunate to see all four episodes the first day. Now, this is obviously the storied history of um, Dr. Dre and Jimmy Iovine, and we're going to talk about a lot of stuff today. This is a documentary that you couldn't, possi- you couldn't cover it in a four-part podcast if we did uh, an almost five hour documentary like they did. So we'll jump right into it. Directed by um, Alan Hughes of the Hughes brothers. For those of you menace to society, American pimp. I always take so much shit for that film because I like it. Cause they're like, you're so sexist. And I'm like, no, it was just a good film. Um, it's a great film. Yeah, it was. And you know, it's cool. Is was one of the pimp. Well, not cool. One of the pimps was, uh, was, in Waikiki and I used to live in Waikiki. And so a good portion of American pimp was shot where I would walk around and hang out in high school. And people wouldn't even buy that has like a cool reason. And I I was just like, no, it's, it's, it's Alan Hughes. And of course the, the, you know, they went by the Hughes brothers on a lot of their films. They're just fantastic. Um, so what we, what we also want to do is, is, uh, Vincent, if you want to give any shout-outs to... You had mentioned the main DP and the research producer. We always want to make sure that we... Uh, I mean, we already sure. know the players are Dr. Dre and Mr. Iveen, but go ahead. Uh, well, the
0: producer was Sarah Anthony, and she's actually who brought me onto the project. Um, she's amazing. Ryan Gallagher was a research producer. Um, Doug Prey was an uh, executive producer and editor. Um, and then Charlie, uh, Charlie Parrish was main DP who uh, was responsible for all of the verite and, you know, kind of fly on the wall, went to the Island, went to the boat, hung out with Dre inside and out, you know, for, for years really. Um, And then Shane Daly and a bunch of other, like Peter Deming, I think
1: actually shot one of the interviews.
0: Um, But I'd say me, Shane and Charlie were the, the three main guys.
1: Okay. Now it's kind of funny. I won't get into it, but, I I know someone who's friends with Sarah Anthony, so that's what's kind of... It's funny that the how the film business just gets smaller and smaller and smaller, and people think that it gets bigger. But it, <laughs> um, anyways, um, I was so thankful that, for this. Of course, I have to thank Sean. This was a very surreal thing just for the show, and we really want to thank uh, Vincent. Before we jump into this really quick... Um, I had seen this as a billboard, and I thought, you know, God, they're remaking a Sidney Poitier movie. Saw it, <laughs> thought, okay, perfect title for these guys. You know, I am I actually got HBO to watch this. So I was like, I'm just going to pay the monthly fee just to watch one show. And uh, here it is three weeks later. We're talking with someone who did a lot of the work, and I got to go back last night and watch some of his work, so... Um, I will zip it and ask. My first question is: Has camera operator, cinematographer, artists, uh what was a specific challenge of capturing a subject? Because a lot of docs, uh, for the most part, aren't about people that everybody on the planet Earth knows or likes or. Knows their story to a certain degree, so how did that kind of go into your process of having to capture these subjects that people, you know, you're not you're not getting to pull out any, you know, huge surprises, so you're having to kind of create that space,
0: right? Well, I mean, Dre obviously is, you know, and it's not a household name, uh, you know, world famous. Um, but Jimmy, on the other hand, has always been kind of behind the scenes. I know he did some sort of talent show, sort of TV show for a while, but his, his feeling was that this was his opportunity to um, really let the world know what he contributed to music. Um, producers often kind of go unrecognized. So in that way, it was kind of a reveal. Um, Dre has a different story, but Dre has a persona and then Dre has reality so in that way, we also got to like kind of show the real side of him. You know, he didn't actually grow up a gangster in W.A.'s rap music isn't uh, literal. I mean, I guess we all know that now, but as kids, we kind of bought it. Right. Um, And I think a lot of people have. So it was it was it was mostly turning a page and showing people the real side of Dre and then introducing people to to Jimmy and sharing with them the moves that he made to make the people he helped make.
1: Well, I like what you're saying with, uh, cause uh, the, the, <clears throat> excuse me, the, what well, was, what I enjoyed about the Jimmy aspects was that it, first of all, it made me feel totally stupid. And I have five or 600 CDs and used to just, I, I can listen to anything from Willie Nelson to Snoop Dogg to, you know, Sam Cooke. To, I, I don't really care what it is. And it just made me feel like it was like hitting the delete button. It was like, wow, this guy's behind Springsteen and this guy's behind Tom Petty. And then growing up hearing Stevie Nicks so much with my mom because she's the Fleetwood Mac generation. And then the, being a Stevie Nicks fan when she was solo. So. I really like that you brought that up because I didn't, I know uh, he got a lot of, like you were saying, he got a lot of uh, not new followers, but kind of put out there. Cause I think he was on American Idol or that's um, what it was. One of, one of Something like that. Yeah. And you know, for me, the only time I ever watched American Idol was when Steven Tyler was on and it was just to hear his banter about the female contestants. <laughs> um, a lot of this I want before I before we move on I want to say about the show the nature of rock and roll and the nature of music and I'm not condescending to the audience is sex and is sexual we're all here because of sex so I I'm not this isn't the one time where we're going to be uh referencing we have to reference certain lyrics to make a point I don't agree with some of the stuff E said. It can be said in a different way. But the thing that I've always loved about music is it says something that we can't stand hearing, but we do. So with that, you had mentioned um, NWA. Now, this persona, how was it for you? Because last night we had talked about our age difference. For me, I was just way too young. My dad was like, there's no way in hell you're listening to it. The first lyric I heard, I won't even repeat on air. So, what what was that light like going through it for you? Uh, well, I mean, <clears throat> um, I, mean, I can
0: talk about this. It's not, and in no way do I do I anything I say disrespect uh, the people I photographed or interviewed. Uh, I grew up in a, a pretty relatively rough neighborhood, and NWA came out um, basically at the same time that crack came out. Um, and I watched my neighborhood flip upside down in a period of like a year. Um, all of a sudden, you know, Crips and Bloods, you know, weren't, were like a mainstay. Crack was a mainstay. Um, and I had a really hard time as a kid not sort of blaming NWA for the popularization of the worst aspects of urban culture. Uh, I think colors contributed to that as well. Um, basically giving street cred to the Crips when they expanded out of L.A., you could come into any neighborhood and say you were rolling sixty, and you immediately were respected in the underworld. Um, and I, I do think that, it, to some degree, that was part of gangster because of gangster rap and because of the film Colors. Um, also, people just wanted something to, to cling on to, um, and especially considering that it wasn't real. You know, if you if you ask Dre or if you ask Ice Cube, uh, especially Ice Cube. He's, you know, he called himself a reporter of the streets. Um, and Dre says he's an entertainer. But the reality is that they presented these things as, as real. Uh, and a lot of kids bought into it and a lot of kids acted on it. And so I, I've always been a little conflicted. And it's, it's a conflict of all artists, right? Um, if you make a movie that, that like Goodfellas, you know, if you make, a, you make a film that basically makes it being a gangster the coolest thing you've ever seen, have a responsibility to people or to society. It's an eternal question, you know. Like where where do you, you know, draw the line? And I think it becomes uh, you know just a deeply personal one that you you have to to reconcile. Um, that said, I didn't. I really enjoyed the opportunity to to work on something that that kind of like put a light on that and reminded everyone that this is just show business.
1: Well, thank you for that answer. Because I, I another thing that funneled into my life was the film colors. And I do remember that, uh, of course, the late great Dennis Hopper, um, you know, perfect example of your own myth, destroying your career with his drugs and his, and people kind of, and then him becoming this established painter and photographer and, um, mostly still just known obviously for easy Rider, and a lot of people, I I say colors, they don't even know what it is. And, um, but colors was, you know, kind of the movie that took place of what was looking at out in South central and, and the gang life. And actually for you film, that's there, uh, Don Cheadle. It's a great early performance of Don Cheadle and, uh, so there is that significance if you'd like to go back and watch film history stuff. But uh, what you were saying for me, uh, the persona totally went through. And I think the way that was so masterfully sold was why I had to stay away from it. Now, don't get me wrong. There was the, and pardon my language, everyone, but when you're a five or six-year-old kid and I have to say this. I'm against. I'm so against censorship. And pardon anybody, but Easy had the first Easy E lyric I ever heard was "lick these nuts." And <laughs> when you're a five-year-old kid, you're really wondering um, why someone would lick your nuts. And <laughs> I always use this as an example because it's like, again, I'm not being crude and I'm not misogynistic. But then you get older and that and that's where things go. And so it was kind of like this weird evolution of like when things moved around. And again, I'm not being crude, where it's like I'm starting to learn where some of these lyrics they're great, they're rock and roll. I love that the NWA got put in the Hall of Fame because I think there's always that argument about, you know, rap isn't they don't work as hard as jazz musicians when they're really just throwing beats together, like jazz musicians. Um, I mean, we're not going to compare easy and Louis Armstrong, uh, rock and roll is, is a big, you know, fuck you, avoid responsibility, money, women. Um, so yeah, so for me, it was like, I, I had no connection of Dre because they were always talking about, EZE. And so even when Ice Cube came out when I was in high school with his solo, uh, America's Most Wanted, there was no. Because we were, I mean, we were all too young. So most of us probably didn't know NWA. So we just had the Dre, Snoop, Ice Cube side. I had just remembered these lyrics that made me kind of feel weird or always calling women bitches and hoes. And. So, Eazy-E was always kind of an enigma to me, and I won't go into it, but we had, uh, for the audience, we had had Jason Mitchell on the show, and we got to talk about a couple of things about Eazy-E and portraying him, and that was kind of a cool experience. Um, Now, last night, obviously since this is music, and I caught right off the bat that we're music and film lovers... uh, We talked about the episodes, and you mentioned a couple of bands that uh, resonated with you. So uh, I'd love to hear what some of the bands, whether they were what uh, Dre found or Jimmy, that were kind of the added bonus for you to work on this.
0: Yeah. um, Well, I'll say that, that Tom Petty is like one of the coolest people I've ever been around. I mean, he's everything that he seems to be he's just like insanely genuine and incredibly I mean he's music first all the way you know he he's like almost an antithesis of of Jimmy like Jimmy is about about getting a hit he's about like making a star and and Tom Petty's about jamming and I thought that was a really cool contrast between the two of them um <clears throat> when Jimmy started uh Interscope um the very first signing was uh, the guy, I can't remember his name, who sang the song Rico Suave. And one of of his partners, uh, um, I think his name was Wally? I can't remember um, his whole name. He was one one of the founding members of Interscope. He was incensed, right? He was like, this is not what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be, like, pushing the envelope, not, like, just, you know, placating to the masses and, Jimmy's position, and I think this is in the, in the documentary, I get confused between what I saw in life and what made it into the documentary sometimes. Um, but Jimmy's position was, look at these secretaries. They are falling over themselves watching this music video. We're signing this guy. And so while I went to San Francisco, I was like, okay, well, then I'm going to go out and I'm going to find the exact opposite of this. And he ended up in San Francisco, going to shows, and found Primus and signed him on the spot. And it was basically a revenge signing for for Rico Rico Suave. And I thought that was, like, hilarious. Like, no Rico Suave, no Primus. (laughs) Um, Which, you know, how could that possibly be the case? You know, it's one of those things, like, too unrealistic, to be true, but it was. Um, And I would say that the most, like, impactful interview, and and I never really got into his music because he never really got to have a music career. It was the DOC he had such like insanely raw talent and you know, it was cut short by, well, really by his own, his own, uh, doings. Um, but his, uh, his interview was so sincere and so raw, you know, he, he didn't hold anything back, um, from talking about the accident to talking about like, and Alan pulls this out of people incredibly well, by the way. Um, but he, he was, just incredibly honest about his own failings, about his own uh, poor choices around around his relationship with Dre and how Dre has stood by him uh, all through that. Um, uh, one really intense part the, of that interview was, was while, I mean, literally while he was talking about how hardcore Suge was back in the day, um, Suge was, was running over and getting arrested, running people over and getting arrested. Um, on a promo thing for Straight of Compton. Uh, and as soon as we finished the interview and turned the lights off and turned the, the overheads on, Sarah Anthony looked at her phone, and she's like, oh, I guess if we interview should, we're going to do it from jail. And that was a, a very, like, sobering moment because you realize that we're not talking about things that happened in the late 80s. We're talking about things that are happening right now.
1: Right. Well that that's very obviously I would never say anything about should Knight. <laughs> anyway n- enough has been said yeah, uh, not too probably know. Yeah exactly especially over air um nine my luck this is playing in jail right now um I I basically uh I I really appreciate that that share because that's really what we've always wanted the show to do without asking and without being personal and um, your work in in creating that space uh I had went back and rewatched it, and I just wanted to compliment you on that because it uh, the way you kind of just created that that space for him to you know kind of just be in a place and not have to worry about that there's too many lights and there's too many things and It just felt very, uh, even though I know it's hard what cinematographers do, it just felt very simple and it really lent to it. And so I just wanted to, uh, compliment you on that. Um, for those of you that haven't seen the doc or don't know, uh, DOC, I would say probably the only reason I knew he was is because I cannot remember the song, but, uh. Dreyer Snoop says, like my N word DOC, no one can do it better like this, that, and this, and And so for a long time I thought, who the hell is the DOC? I thought, is it just some you know, pot dealer of theirs, or is it some kind of inside right. joke? And so when that came on the dock, I went, Oh, this is really interesting and then to see how it is kind of a um you know, a lifelong thing. Uh, One of the things, this is just a a little bit off topic, but you you had mentioned it, was uh, the way this showed how Dr. Dre keeps that, uh, I guess, that lifetime loyalty, which we both know is rare in the film business. We know is rare in the music business. And then we know gets a hundred times more rare once the kind of zeros are involved uh, at the level that he works at. And that was what I admired the most that you guys um, captured was that it's still those friends from uh, NWA days. It's still those, people that he came up with uh, that was really really admirable and I, re- I really liked the way you guys captured it and set it up right and and yeah, was love- um, you me- I mean you mentioned, you mentioned Alan Hughes and good about getting, getting things out of people obviously we're not going to get into Alan Hughes secrets but is I've always kind of wondered just what you feel comfortable or could tell me about him because to me, he's always been that I've always loved him because he's that just kind of, you know, menace to society. I was 14. I remember just being like, what the fuck is this? Yes. Yeah, My uh, broken city. So go ahead with uh, what you're going to say.
0: Uh, Well, I mean, one thing I'll say about Alan, just took me a minute to realize you know how, how a really good comedian throws a joke away he right. Alan throws insight away. he'll say something so matter of fact and like so nonchalantly that like twenty minutes later or sometimes a day later you go, "Oh, that was brilliant and it, at the time it just kind of comes in and out, and that's that's something that it took me a while to like I need to really be paying attention to this guy because he he's he's dropping like um." But, as far as this particular um, piece goes uh what made it what made Alan like perfect for the project is that he's known these guys for a really long time. You know he came up through hip hop uh he was i think an intern for e z e he was uh directing Tupac at nineteen um, so he's known all these guys for a really long time, and in a lot of ways, it was like catching up. Uh, I felt like I was just like hanging out with two old friends that hadn't seen each other in a while. And if you if you when you're watching the doc, you, you'll you hear him like interjecting during the interview because he's just wrapping up, um, you know, with uh, with intention. But it is a very like like organic exchange between him and almost everybody, especially on on the West Coast side, especially on his side.
1: And I noticed last night when I was re-watching because Snoop uh, Snoop Dogg's first album, Doggy Style, you know, comes out when I'm in ninth grade. I know what the chronic is because I'm already having way too much of it, and (laughs) I I, I haven't lost my virginity, and I keep wondering why this album is called Doggy Style, and I'm not making the correlation (laughs) of. Snoop Dogg, and the only reason I bring this up was because that that great song "Gin and Juice," and you know we're talking about these moments of friendship. And I have a friend. I'm 38. I have a friend in the in the next month. I've been I've known him 25 years, and we would go on this little access road where there was no traffic. It was two in the morning. There was no danger. We were not hammered, and we would go down the street listening to gin and juice with gin and juice in our hands saying like acting like we're rolling down the street and Love it. so yeah exactly and i just loved that that uh that all these songs you know hit generations i mean that's what music does so it's not like i mean don't get me wrong i'll do respect i mean it's it's not like all of a sudden this happened but it was uh the things that it was conjuring up were so great and like you were saying tom petty i mean uh that is probably like one of two people on the planet that i would actually like go up to and just like risk them not wanting me stopping them like because i just love so much of his music and i i know some people that know him and like you were saying he's just mellow and he's just i i've that running down a dream doc that Peter Bogdanovich directed, um, how he's just so about the art, no matter how big the house gets, no matter how big the fame got, or you know, I, I mean, gosh, getting into what even that guy survived with his house burning down and and the record business. Uh, let's see, Stevie Nicks. I did want to say one more thing about about Snoop Dogg that ties into Stevie Stevie Nicks. And I and I do have one or two questions about your interviews with her. Um, okay. Stevie Nicks was, a, like I had said, my mom's kind of, I guess you could say, high school Snoop Dogg. And I called her <laughs> up last night and I said, I said, you got to call me. up You got to tell me some stuff about Stevie Nicks. I said, I, 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 you know, people say Google stuff and I get so tired of that because Google's not regulated and Google wasn't there during Stevie Nicks and and my mom says, "Well, I kind of forgot." And I, I said, "But you're always listening to Stevie Nicks. You're always listening to Fleetwood Mac." And it was kind of like a forgot, like I was smoking too much chronic. And right. so that's funny. I had kind of la- yeah. So I laughed that when you said two of the main interviews you did were were people that just conjure up for us uh and it's great that of course it's my mother. So I kinda had told her last night, I said, Well, you know what? I guess from this point on we can never wonder where I got all that dope smoking from. Like right, that's funny. It's you, it's not possibly dad. My dad's a sixties baby, so he had even more you know, there's even more things. Um so Stevie Nicks, uh just I guess the only question would be we won't. The, the documentary goes into it, so it's public knowledge. But I don't. I don't want to spend time talking about it about the craziness between Petty and the personal stuff with Jimmy. Um, but and if you don't want to answer, that's cool. But I was wondering what it's like to be filming. It's almost like you're 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 filming someone talk about breaking up or not really being good friends anymore? Like, was there, like, how as an artist do you do that? Like, that was the one thing where I was just thinking, I don't think I could be, a, I, I, I have no idea how I would do something like that.
0: All right, that's an interesting question. I had never really thought about it, to be honest. Um, I mean, really, that's, as far as dealing with it, that's something that, that Alan um, had to do. I, I, at the time, I didn't, honestly, she felt so comfortable talking about it that it didn't feel uncomfortable being there. You know, uh, it, it was very matter of fact, she was very, she, you know, obviously come to terms. Um, but it definitely you still feel like she had some, some love left, um, to give, which, uh, which was kind of beautiful, you know? Um, honestly, like it, she, she made it feel comfortable. That's so that's really all I can say about
1: that. Okay. Well, yeah, because I I when I was watching and when I was watching the Jimmy uh, Petty relationship, which of course you don't you don't have to comment on. Um, I was laughing because I was like, you know, I hate dudes that gypped me out of fifty grand, and these guys are talking about you know switching songs around that made millions. So I really yeah. admired the. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I mean, I, I feel
0: like that's the, the brilliance of Jimmy. Honestly, is that he right. uh, he asked for for forgiveness instead of permission, and as a result, he's made, you know, he's made people's careers. You know, I think that you know the first concert I ever went to was Fleetwood Mac. I was like five or six. So I went with my parents, and Stevie Nicks plays a, a pretty big role and and in, in my life too. And and to know that honestly, her her solo career wouldn't have been what it was without without Jimmy being conniving essentially uh is pretty great um i mean i think the the release times is the big issue with that you know because obviously tom petty jumped on board and sang the song with her uh and i think that um you know i'm sure things could have been handled better but everybody still seemed to come up on top you know i think um honestly at the end of the day i think it was all for the best and i think that's you know one of jimmy's talents
1: Oh, yes. That, I mean, that was what I liked about the doc also was, and of course, Alan Hughes and, and just the way you guys shot it and timed it and uh, timed some of the interviews. And that, of course, you know, credit to editors and and writers and everyone. Um, you know, I, I still meet people that think filmmaking isn't like a hundred people working on something. They They think that you know, Alan Hughes shot every interview and hung every light, right. and you know, <laughs> logged every piece yeah, of it's editing. it's a collaborative and, art. Yeah, you know, it's it's so beyond collaborative. And and what I and what I was actually interested was there was a question. There was one last question I had about your work was. I'm always interested in when you have this you know, you have a great cinematographer and maybe they've worked with an editor before or maybe they've worked with a production designer before and they get that interaction. But then there's those parts, and this is for the audience, where you're you're creating a, a piece of the cloth and you're not meeting the person, or maybe you are just briefly or a little bit, but it's not like uh, Roger Deakins sits in the room with the editor until it's color timing, which is the next process. So for you, what was it like to uh, have... You have Alan Hughes, you have uh, Charlie, and then you have what you have to do in something that you know is going to be multiple parts with multiple different looks and styles. I'm assuming this was the first time you did that. So was there kind of a like... You just say fuck it and go with it, or is, what was kind of a well, anything you'd like to share or could share.
0: So the philosophical approach to the photography for the interviews was: if it was an interview regarding Jimmy, we framed them on the right side um, for the East Coast, and if it was Dre, it was on the left side, West Coast, and then Jimmy and Dre were always dead center in the middle. Um, so without exception that that's the way it worked and if you go back and look at the framing um you'll you'll see that it's it's that way every single time um the frames you know basically we wanted to create as big a space as possible to put these larger than life figures in Um, and then we went in for close-ups of course Um, so kind of outside of the box for most documentaries um you know dre is the probably biggest frame in the in the whole film Um, with the most depth but uh, most of them you know we tried to go we tried to go pretty big shot it in 4k so they could punch in later um and uh that and that west coast east coast thing was was all alan's concept
1: Ah, that's that's really smart i'm gonna have to go back and take a look at some of that because i was I that actually the the peak of that and I don't even I won't even waste it, waste more than this on on it cuz it's just so documented and it was so just led to too much death but um I was that was like right smack in the middle of high school of the east coast west coast thing and I think Tupac got oh, shot when it, yeah. I was a jun- Yeah, when I was a junior in high school and I remember when we talk about and now that I'm thinking about it when you talk about the, you know, thank you for this insight, the, uh, of course we know it was marketed and it was magazines and all that stuff, but, uh, you know, we had guys in school thinking, oh, I like, you know, I like Biggie and Puffy and you like, and it was just like, dude, we're, we're in high school. We're not even on the streets. We go to a really great high school. Yeah. Like, right. We don't need to, we don't need to argue about who won the hip hop source awards, uh, so, uh, with that, we'll move into a couple of things um, that cinematographers that you love or that uh, that influence you and, and keep you going. I'm always interested in that when I talk with cinematographers.
0: Okay, sure.
1: Um, well,
0: there's a lot of directors uh, that have influenced me, a lot of DPs that have influenced me, but the the thing i like to think really enjoy the most is watching a director dp collaboration over years um those that i find a lot of inspiration in um you know cohen brothers and deacons scorsese and Bauhaus, uh pt anderson and robert ellswood um michael mann dante spinati uh these guys um you know stone and and tarantino both got to play with bob Richardson for years um and and watching those people evolve their storytelling together is, is what I find really inspiring. And every single one of the names I just named have been, like, massively influential.
1: Oh, well, I, I, like, I like those answers you gave because I'm, I loved, I got into film because JFK, and so I always just knew the names Robert Richardson and Oliver Stone when I was 12. And I was allowed to watch Born on the Fourth of July because my dad's a Vietnam vet, but I wasn't allowed to watch Platoon, and I never understood why. And then he showed, you know, the first thing he showed me was JFK because it was like, you know, someday I hope you never live to see it, but some kind of bullshit's gonna happen where you're gonna have to question your government. And in our generation, we weren't allowed to, so like, you know, do it. And and I'm like this 12 year old kid thinking. what do you mean I'm going to have to question my government or like uh, think for myself or, um, and what you're saying? I mean, of course, those are such great, I mean, Cohen's the Deacons and um, Michael Mann and Spinotti. I mean, uh, yeah, the insiders, I think. Oh, it's that was a
0: game changer. I was just gonna say the insider was a game changer for me as far as cinematography goes. I felt like they they broke so many rules and made them made every every single move they made work without question. You know, I don't I don't think that there's a bad choice in that film and and they cross the line, they go handheld, they go, you know, and then locked off and they you know, it's just it's mind blowing that film.
1: That you know, I was gonna say what what Talking about the rules, I was to say what always jumps out for me about crossing the line is in that scene when Russell Crowe and Al Pacino are having sushi Or having sushi or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and the camera because the just table turns. has Yeah, it has no line and it's and it's and for me at the time I didn't know what that was. I saw it, when off the film school, came back and it was just like, eh, of course when you graduate film school you know everything, right? So, right. It was like, wait a minute, how did how? And I remember talking to a mentor of mine, and he was just like, "There's not a rule book when you're Michael Mann." Like, <laughs> kind of like my well, intro. Well, right, but he's he's <laughs> good.
0: But you also you also don't do things without without. Motivation like that, that line crossing in, in that scene is motivated by the dialogue and the relationship that's going on between the two of those characters. You know, when right. the, the, the the interviewer becomes the interviewee, that's when we cross the line.
1: Right. I, well, I also took it too, Has there's so many different points of view for the audience. And like you're saying the characters and there's just so much going on that it's like life is being blurred. Because, I mean, cause again, like that collateral, um, I know collateral isn't Dante Spinotti. Um, uh, we actually almost had the DP of collateral on this month, but there was some scheduling stuff. Um, Talk about a guy who would have hung up on me for talking about Collateral. Um, <laughs> I thought that was one who of the most brilliant that? films. Uh, his name uh Paul Cameron, and it says it's shared with Dion Beebe, and I, of course, wasn't going to ask why there was shared credit. I know I had heard Michael Mann talk once about how uh, he was he always was most proud that it was two different cinematographers and... No one would think that or guess that. No one would know. Um, right. I, I just thought that movie was, uh, it was to me, it was one of those films where I know people that don't, uh, they don't particularly like it that much, but I'm just like, you just need to see downtown LA once at night, and you're going to think it's a masterpiece. Mm-hmm. You know, I get that I don't know, go ahead. I'm sorry? Oh, no, oh, I thought you were going to say something. Um so do you so do you have of any of those that you listed, I'm sure like do you have the I, I'm always interested too in what are those films I call them well other than that you get your wife and kid out, I call them your house is on fire, you have to grab yeah, those yeah. films. What what are what are some of those films for you? Uh well Insider for sure. Um I think
0: virtually everything that uh, the Coen brothers ever made, but I would say that Barton Fink, which was, I think uh, Deacon's and the Coen brothers first collaboration uh, is one that is near and dear to my heart. Um, I think I still will stand by Boogie Nights as being absolutely amazing. Um, Although maybe it isn't quite. Yeah, no, it is. I would take it. Um, As far as, uh, Scorsese goes, I mean, I think Goodfellas is maybe the best gangster film ever made. Um, he probably shouldn't have made another gangster film after that, to be honest, if you want my opinion on that. But I don't know why anyone would. Um, and then, you know, outside of those that I listed, um, Gordon Willis is, is uh, a DP that has always inspired me. And I think that I would I'd be torn between Annie Hall and The Godfather if I was going to have to take one of his films with me. And I could only take one. Um, I think that they came out within like a year of each other and they couldn't be more, you know, more different. Um, uh, Children of Men, honestly, by Lobetsky. Oh, that's It was a massive, <laughs> yeah, it was a massive inspiration uh, cinematically. Um, what else? Um, I mean, I, I have a weak spot for early early Woody Allen, right as he was going from comedy to, to drama, um, Stardust Memories, I think, I think that it was also Gordon Willis, um, I'm not hundred percent on that. Ahead, Stardust Memories is amazing. Um, and, uh, Crimes and Misdemeanors, which I don't think he shot. I'm not sure though. Um, Crimes and Misdemeanors is, is a film that has always, you know, really impacted me when I saw it. Um,
1: yeah, I'd have to look up if that was Carlo De Pagli or, uh, Swin, uh Swin, whatever he, when he used Bergman's, uh, Sven Nykvist. Yeah. Sven's yeah. Yeah. amazing. Um, Sven's uh, absolutely amazing. Yeah, you know what I what I like about Woody Allen and that and uh, Scorsese was that they did those they did those films, but they had their, I think like Michael ballhaus was uh, or Michael Chapman was Taxi Driver and Bull, yes. and then. Like Michael Ballhaus was Goodfellas and The Departed, and then Robert Richardson had that string of like The Aviator, Shine a Light, Shutter Island, and then now he's got this thing going and, with Rodrigo Prieto, and right. I'm gonna I'm interested to see where that goes. And Bob did uh, Casino too, right? Yes, of course, Casino. Yeah, which
0: I that was his know, first thing with
1: him, point. I think. Yeah, you've brought up a very good point about why would you make another gangster film, and Goodfellas, Like I think you said the greatest point, which everyone knows, uh, uh, when you were talking about NWA, is that I don't remotely mean it, but it's like Goodfellas In in this weird way, it makes you just like if you're broke, want to take money, or it makes you want to have five hundred suits. I'm I'm gonna draw a line. It makes you want to be feared. Right. Yeah. It makes you want respect. Yeah. Right. The the respect and I and I and I casino has the example of that famous scene when Robert De Niro says, "Is this your pen?" And then, you know, Joe mm-hmm. Pesci kills him and then says, what's this? Is this a little girl? Where's the friend that told him to go fuck himself? And, and I think that for Casino has always played the sensibility that we've all had those incidents in public where just once we wish we had a Nikki, where it was just like you're going to step right. on my woman's foot and now you're going to act like it was okay to do it. And, and it's so funny because the biggest pacifist people in the world I know, love good fellows And you know, it's that little brain going, God, I'd, I'd love to walk into a room and everybody hands me champagne. <laughs> or like, right. Uh, you know, what do you do? I'm a construction delegate or whatever that is. <laughs> um, right.
0: A uh, union delegate. But, but
1: Yeah. Yeah. I'm a union delegate. Um, I, and I love how she says it, it doesn't, you don't feel, it doesn't seem like one or something. And, uh, but I, I like what you said because on for just for my list, I have, I I I, I own uh, almost every Scorsese movie from Mean Streets up to Wolf, except for Shutter Island. Um, for some reason, I don't own Paul Thomas. Well, oh, I own There Will Be Blood. I thought that was masterful. Uh, yeah, and one of the I-
0: hardest films I've ever watched in my life.
1: Oh, it, it, if you do, could you. If you don't want to elaborate why, or could you? Uh,
0: no, I, I I don't mind talking about that at all. That film, like, it was like watching, I mean, I literally sat in the theater the first time I saw that in a semi-fetal position with, like, my hands, like, over my head. <laughs> it's just, like, one insanely bad choice after the other, and you wanted him to make good choices, you know? And it, it's, I think, I think P.T. Anderson even said it was, it, when he was making it, he realized that he was making a horror film like a monster movie that didn't have a literal monster. And that's how I felt. I felt terrified the entire time I was watching it. It haunted me for the weeks and weeks.
1: Like in a bad way or like you meant yeah. like, in, the, like I, in filmmaking choices or you mean like the character?
0: no the the film itself, like the story that it told, consumed me in a really unusual way yes, oh. like I mean, I think that was his intention, obviously you know I mean he's unbelievable right. at what he does, but it made me so uncomfortable, and so it was like you know like when he killed the guy who's pretending to be his brother or when he sends his kid away, or I mean he's just one, like, what are you doing after the other and it was so hard for me to watch i couldn't I couldn't shake it, you know, and I, most films, I can be a little more analytical and a little more detached, but um, that one really pulled me in.
1: Yeah, that was uh, and that was also, of course, was around the same time as No Country for Old Men, so, of course, that was the first year where villains both won the Oscars, and so that was like the kind of like battle of who was the creepier villain, and uh, I mean, I remember There Will Be Blood and whatever, it's been out long enough that if this spoils it for you, then we do apologize for the show, film. but yeah, you sh- exactly. You should have seen the film is that that movie the I think the most ingenious thing and Paul Thomas Anderson did it from starting out Boogie Nights with, of course, the story of having the Boogie Nights billboard so they can't change his title from Part eight, uh, to <laughs> there will be blood. The whole movie I'm sitting here going, okay, PT Anderson can sell me, Frogs and flies on flowers, and I'll go watch it. There is Uh no blood. There is no blood. There is no blood. There is no blood. At least in Boogie Nights, there was porn. Blah, blah, blah. And when he finally hits him at the end, and then it goes to the credits, I went, He didn't say blood. He said, There will be blood. Right. (laughs) And I just was like, I was just like, Mozart just stopped playing. The opera's over. I just was yep. like, "Did he, I can?" I had never seen anything like it. I was. I remember just sitting there. I let the DVD in, and I was just like, "I don't believe it." One shot of blood, yep. and we were waiting. I was. What I is mean, that? even when he's pulling. Yeah, I mean, how do you, I thought? How do you even plan that? Um, yeah. what is the closing line in that film? I'm finished. Isn't that yes. the last, the very last piece of dialogue? Oh, yes.
0: Yes. It's yes. like, oh
1: my god. <laughs> Yeah, he and it's kind of like I drank your milkshake. I mean, it's so, um, so the last disturbing. two things here. Oh, pardon?
0: They it said it's so disturbing.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, Daniel Day Lewis, such a deserved Oscar. I mean, that was just, that was like, I mean, that, that and Javier Bardem. When I saw those two movies, I just thought, you know what, there shouldn't even be an announcement of. Nominations. It's not about awards, but I thought these guys should just be brought Oscars on set because there's nothing that's going to touch these guys. Um, last two questions that we uh, have started asking all guests. Uh, mm-hmm. You have the budget. You have a great script. You have a great director. What is your dream genre to get to shoot? That's a good question.
0: Um, well, from a selfish standpoint, it would have to be period because you, you get, you get a lot of opportunity to, to make some, some really interesting imagery when, when there is an electricity, for instance. Um, I, I have a pretty severe weakness for Westerns. Um, I would love to be a part of a great, great Western, um, beyond that something that can tell a story and this isn't a a direct answer to your question but something that can tell a story with as little dialogue as possible i feel like we're visual storytellers and too often people are hung up on dialogue to tell the story and we should show and not tell all the time uh, which is what's so great about no country for old men you know there's it's and it is cat and mouse and so that lends to you know being able to do that fairly readily but um I really appreciate being able to to tell as much of a story as possible through moving images.
1: That's uh well that's a great example too of uh because I I had always said that, you know, what what is it, the man who wasn't there, the lady killers there was that string of Cohen brothers that kind of except for super hardcore bands or filming. Yeah. That made you kind of go like, what are they doing? And when I saw no country for old men about, I had, I was dating a girl whose parents lived in New Mexico. So there was many times we had to drive through Arizona New Mexico, and we had went on a road trip through Texas. So when that opening shot hit, um, it's like I smelt the road and I and I and I felt disoriented the way I felt on those road trips. And I went, OK, something else is going on here because I'm already feeling like I'm stuck in a car with air conditioning and CDs we've already listened to. Um, Roger Deacons, of course, I don't understand how no matter what he's shooting, it seems like. You know, if he's shooting a garden, it seems like he was a gardener his whole life, and he'd probably say, "Oh, that yeah. was the first time I ever saw a rosebud." Um, yeah, he's, so that it's movie, always perfect. I yeah, exactly. And I and I and for me, I walked out of it, and I, I remember saying to my grandma, "I said they went back to blood simple. They went That's right. That's back exactly to right. visual, and what put them on the map." and sure it was great and it was fun and and you know you see your little Sam Peckinpah references with the getaway and you see you see all their love of 70s film and genre and and you have this villain that you that I mean a villain that does not talk other than a couple of scenes um was amazing um so yeah so that was what I uh no country for old men did for me and I think i had seen that I'd obviously seen that before there will be blood uh, so those were two movies that uh, I'm actually you're actually you're totally making my head spin. Why I don't own No Country for Old Men? Probably because I watched it too many times and borrowed it too many right. times. Um,
0: it's one of those so films last... that I will continue to watch for years. Um, where I will probably n- maybe watch There Will Be Blood one more time in my life, <laughs> but No Country I can just watch. I you know I can turn it on anytime and watch it. It's a perfect film.
1: Yeah, there's... I, it was redemption, I love you know, it was so redemption
0: stuff. for the cone Feathers. Right,
1: right, right, right. Well, that's what I love about so many, about those certain... Uh, I mean, that's what collateral is for me, and that's what uh, that's what the funnest part of the show is, is hearing those films and hearing how diverse they can be. Sometimes they're just a cheese ball comedy, and people are like, I want to turn my brain off. I mean... Let's face it. Mm-hmm. I mean, unless you're like the biggest film snob in the world, you'll watch Revenge of the Nerds again. <laughs> or yeah. <you> know, there, <laughs> totally. There's those ones that are just touchstones where you have to go back and at 11 o'clock at night and just go, okay, I'm going to have some Cheerios. And uh, so my, my last question for you would be just the opposite of the last question. Rent's due. Credit cards are due. But there's just no way in heck, and it's not because bad script or content of script, but you're just not doing this genre. Just
0: not doing I'm a genre not... for feature?
1: Yeah, uh, I, I don't know what here. that would
0: be. Um, I you know I I don't like horror films at all, but I love working on them. Um, I genre that I just wouldn't have anything to do with I don't I don't think that that's that exists I mean I would hope it doesn't anyway I, I think that that would I mean is there anything that I hate so much watching so much that I wouldn't want to be a part of it um, I mean cheeseball romantic comedies have a place in my heart Uh, you know like I mean I wouldn't want to do a skin and Max thing if that counts as a genre um, well,
1: you know, I, I was gonna say one of the last DPs said porn, so I yeah, think that probably know, I, that I, I would steer clear yeah. of that. <laughs> I would,
0: yeah, I would steer clear of that for sure. Um, but as far as like on the mainstream goes, you know, I think that you can take almost any genre and and tell a good story with it if 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 the script is, you know, if if it's there, it's there, you know.
1: Oh, no, definitely. Definitely. And we are down to our last three minutes. So I wanted to say thank you for our time, for your time. Absolutely. Thank you. And we, I appreciate it, especially the way it was set up and just shotgun. And, and uh, I will end with, uh, again, myself, not Vincent, and I don't care because the show's not censored. But one night, my buddy and I were, the girlfriends and the wife were off at. A casino, and it was. I'm only saying this because how funny it was. We were watching Skinamax, and, Max, and mm-hmm. they had <laughs> shots at our college in Hawaii. And it was funny because they were trying to use this pagoda to make it look like Thailand, and it's where we used to always go and smoke dope. So we totally knew what it was, and we're like, that's not Thailand, that's what that's our dope smoking spot. And then it showed all these beaches, and it was like, oh, my God. So, like, we called the film office, and it's like, oh, you know, indies have trouble getting permits that are local stories, but Skinamax can just walk in, and I'm like, that's how you want to portray the island? But anyways, we leave, we start with, yeah, we start with crude language, and we'll end with crude content. (laughs) We're thankful thankful again for having you. Yes, exactly. It's good to bookend, right? You got to start with EZE and his lyrics the and with Uh So, again, you have a great day. I, I look forward to talking to you again soon and uh, best wishes with all the projects you're doing right now.
0: Great. Thank you. I appreciate it very much.
1: All right. Take care. Cheers. And we appreciate the time of Vincent. That was so great. Uh, the hours the hour shows just fly by here, but I never want to ask someone to do 90 minutes or and when you get two film people talking, you could probably go three hours, but then again, who would who would listen that long? So with that, I'm gonna say happy Aloha Friday. I'm gonna say thank you for joining us. I'm gonna say thank you to Sean for setting this up. Very, very cool of you, man. I appreciate it. Uh, let's see, tomorrow we got some, uh, I got an indie filmmaker that's been winning festivals all over the country, and we got lots of stuff coming up, so you're going to want to stay tuned. Like I always say, whether it's morning, afternoon, evening, or whatever t- other time of day you can find, make sure and watch a good movie. Aloha.